Good morning. If you take God's word and turn to Galatians chapter two, Galatians chapter two, we were there last Sunday. We're gonna be there this Sunday. Our text today is Galatians 2, 11 through 24. 2, 11 through 24. Let's go ahead and, and bow our head and close our eyes. Uh, no doubt when you come to church, there's a lot that's in front of getting here, right? There's getting ready, there's loading kids, picking out outfits, etc. There's the stress of just even getting here. We wanna take a moment just to take a deep breath and ask for the Lord's assistance. We want to understand, but we wanna be changed by what we see, right? And if that's gonna take place, God's gonna do that work and delight to do so this morning. So if you go ahead and bow your heads, let's go before him. Lord, we want to be quick to express our neediness, our dependency upon you. You've given us a rich treasure of a book. These are your words to us and we get to read of them now and we get to marvel at this gospel of grace that we love. Lord, that as the apostle Paul, Paul would even say, you have marked us out by your grace, even from our mother's womb. And so we can't help but say, thank you. We can't help but gather in your name and lift high your praises. We pray that you would fuel our efforts this morning that our singing, our attentiveness to your word would be energized by your spirit. And Lord, we pray this morning as we continue our study of the book of Galatians, and we see this glorious freedom that you have granted to us by your grace, would you overwhelm us? Would you astound us by this gift of salvation? And Lord, would you change us? Reveal things in us, perhaps even this morning that are unpleasant, unseemly or not honoring to you. And Lord, would you de delight to work conviction in us and show us the way of repentance. Lord, we thank you for the momentous occasion that is this morning. We thank you for what you're doing, for your great renown here at North Lake Bible Church and, and abroad. You are building your church. You are calling sinners to yourself and we are grateful to just even be a part of it. Thank you for the ability to be here today without fear of persecution. May we not take anything for granted. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles open to Galatians 2, 11 through 24. Drew, thank you, last week. Last week we got to, we had the privilege of really watching a gospel freedom fighter in action. The truth of the gospel, what... Paul says in Galatians 2.14 this Sunday, that truth of the gospel, that message that a holy God is making unholy people right with himself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is in danger. And it's in danger of being distorted, which is no less equally true today, amen? This same gospel of grace is no doubt in danger. And so no less than 15 years after Christ's resurrection, I want you to wrap your minds around that for a moment. 15 years after the resurrection of, resurrection of Christ, Paul is having to write this letter. And he's having to hold out the grace of God and remind the church there in Galatia of these things. And so in chapter one, verses one through 10, we see God's grace is, is declared, is pronounced in Paul's message. 
In chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, we see God's grace is even demonstrated in, in Paul's life. He says, listen, I was a persecutor. I was a murderer, persecutor of the church. And but by the grace of God, he called me out, even from my mother's womb. God's grace was demonstrated in his life. And in chapter 2, God's grace is now being defended in Paul's ministry. And we saw the beginning of that defense last Sunday in verses 1 through 10. Noting along the way that gospel clarity really demands courage in the face of would-be distorters. And do you recall last Sunday, who is it that Paul was confronting last week? Do, you re- do we remember? I hear whispers. I will assume it's correct. Anyone? Who is he confronting? The Judaizers, right? This party of Jewish elites, the Judaizers, who were saying what? that Gentiles had to be circumcised according to Jewish custom in order to be saved. You just need to go back to Acts 15 as the backdrop in the scene of that occasion. And with verse 10 of chapter two, the curtain falls on that particular drama. And in verse 11, the curtain rises again to reveal yet another drama. This gospel freedom fighter still has to defend the gospel of grace, but this time it's a personal confrontation with who? with Peter, a fellow apostle. This is sort of a clash of titans, if you will. And Peter's failing and need for rebuke and examination and repentance where there were inconsistencies with his life and the gospel is a reminder to you and I, amen, that no one, no one is above stumbling. We all have areas where the gospel has not impacted our life as it should. We all have corners of our hearts where the gospel is not invaded as it ought. And here is where this morning's passage is so wonderfully helpful because we're gonna observe three areas of gospel faithfulness in the church. Leads us to the main idea today, Galatians 2, 11 through 24. Gospel faithfulness shows up in our culture, doctrine, and spirituality. Culture, doctrine, and spirituality. Each level of faithfulness is really what sets us apart from the rest of the world. For if we are grounded in gospel doctrine, and if we display gospel culture, and if we are moved along by the power of gospel spirituality, well then surely, surely the word faithful will be assigned to us. Which is that, that not what we want, North Lake Bible Church? We want to be noted by our great Savior as faithful. In the spirit of Colossians 1.10, we want to be fully pleasing to the Lord, pleasing him in all respects, not moderately pleasing, but fully pleasing. This is what Paul contends for with Peter in this passage, because for him, what was at stake was nothing less than gospel faithfulness in Peter's life. So let's read verses 11 through 24 this morning. Paul states, but when Cephas, it's another word for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man, and this is a key verse to this whole text, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by what church? The works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even if we have, even at, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Something massive was on the line in Antioch. Peter didn't see it. Barnabas didn't see it. Paul saw it clearly. He sums it up in verse 21. Listen, I, unlike you, Peter, by your actions, I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Friends, were others nullifying the grace of God? Were they saying in effect that Christ died to no avail, to no purpose? The answer to that question, that by their actions, that's exactly what they were doing. And so we're gonna press into the passage with three questions today. Where do we find faithful gospel culture and gospel doctrine and gospel spirituality that is radically, and antithetic, radically antithetical to what we see in Peter and the Judaizers' life here? Number one, gospel culture, verses 11 through 14. Sadly, we see in this passage the opposite of gospel culture. That's the very thing that was so offensive to Paul. Look at verse 14 for a moment. But when I saw that they, they being Peter, Cephas, and others who had thrown themselves into hypocrisy, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, the ESV has that as their conduct was not in step with the gospel, which is also a sound rendering. I said to Cephas or Peter in the presence of all, now time out there and use your sanctified imaginations. This is a bit awkward to say the least, no? Paul says to Peter, right? The one that Christ himself said upon this rock, not Peter himself, but his confession that Christ is the son of God. He says to Peter, unashamedly and boldly in the presence of all. If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, thank you, Drew. Now the principle there is you live like the Gentiles when no one is watching. If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, 
How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Jude warned us about perverting the gospel of grace through sensuality, but Peter is doing quite the opposite here, isn't he? He's nullifying the grace of God by doing what? He's complicating it with legalism. And Paul is so alarmed, he's literally willing to stand up and speak about it openly and quite awkwardly. Now, the striking thing about Peter's betrayal of of the doctrine of justification by faith alone is that the apostle betrayed the doctrine not at the level of doctrine, but at the level of culture. And to Paul, that, that was a betrayal of the doctrine, what he called the truth of the gospel. That is the gospel in its true bearing upon their fellowship and relationships and vibe and ethos and all of the other subtleties that culture entails. Martin Luther understood how much was at stake here when he commented with what Paul is gonna later say in verse 21, where Paul says, unlike you, Peter, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Listen to what Martin Luther wrote. He says, what eloquence is able sufficiently to set forth these words to nullify grace? Also that Christ died for no purpose. The horribleness of it is such that all the eloquence in the world is not able to express it. It is a small matter to say that any man died for no purpose, but to say that Christ died for no purpose is to take him quite away. Listen to this next part. Nevertheless, this sin is what? It's common. The horrible but common sin in this passage is departing from the practical and relational implications of justification by faith alone. It's turning a gracious gospel fellowship into a coercive social environment, which is exactly what Peter and others there were doing. That's what was taking place. Peter was holding to the doctrine, but he was rejecting that doctrine through his own culture. And so Paul says, listen, Peter, your conduct is not in step with the truth or the import of the gospel. And yet Peter was orthodox on paper, was he not? But here in this situation, he, he's heretical in his practice. He's heretical in his influence. And if Paul were among us today, he would insist, listen, church, people of God, it's only when people are faithful to both biblical doctrine as well as a relational culture that they are deemed faithful before the eyes of their savior. Why? Listen, it's because it's possible for us today by our practice and our deeds, our actions, our posturing, our relationships to deny what we sincerely profess by our theology. We can unsay through our culture what we say through our church doctrine. Does everyone understand that? We can literally contradict our theology. However biblical our exposition, however brilliant our apologetics, we can really smack in the face of the gospel of grace by the kind of people that we are, the kind of conduct that we display, the kind of social dynamics that we create with one another. And so our faithful question today is, well, how did Peter sin so horribly that the gospel was at stake? Well, you know the background. 
Peter had learned something profound in Acts chapter 10, didn't he? You recall, vision from heaven, right? He had learned that Gentiles were equally acceptable to God by his grace and through Christ. A vision from heaven made that abundantly clear to Peter three different occasions. What God has deemed clean, do not call common. And the point of that vision was obvious in the conversion of a man by the name of Cornelius, as well as other Gentiles in Caesarea. Now the Mishnah, the body of Jewish tradition, had warmed up to that point that Gentiles and the dwelling place of Gentiles was woefully unclean. The implication was is that Jews were instructed ardently to stay away from the dwelling place of Gentiles lest they be defiled. But you'll recall in Acts 10 when Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet to worship him, not only did Peter the Jew refuse to receive special honor, he did exactly what the mission of the body of Jewish tradition had forbidden and warned against. He proceeded to walk into Cornelius' home, something he had never done before. Peter saw that the new Gentile believers, they were equal with him a Jew. Why? It's because his savior, Jesus Christ, was sufficient to make any man, Jew and Gentile alike, kosher in the eyes of God, acceptable, right, receivable. This apostle who so jealously guarded his Jewish pedigree goes out of his way to demonstrate that he is at the same level before God as Gentiles. You'll remember that as Peter does this in Acts 10, what falls upon the Gentiles? The Holy Spirit, just as it had the Jews, confirming to everyone that God was accepting these people unto himself. To the point where in Acts 11, later in the city of Jerusalem, Peter's literally gonna say, who was I to stand in God's way? I couldn't stand in God's way. It's plain, God has received them. And so this wonderful new identity of believers in Christ alone was, it was obvious to Peter. It was obvious to everyone in Caesarea that this was a major turning point in God's gospel being spread to the nations. Now that was Caesarea of Acts chapter 10. Fast forward, this is Antioch. And note how Peter's tune is now changed. Again, this is a reminder and warning to all of us. Just look at verse 11. The warm reception of Christ following Gentiles that we saw in Acts 10 has now given way to hypocritical exclusion that is driven by the fear of man. Verse 11, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? Well, verse 12 notes why. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. So the leaders of the Jerusalem church have come. Prior to them coming, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to see the hypocrisy. He began to do what? Withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. What is Peter saying now that's different than Acts 10? Peter, through his actions, is denying that there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. Peter's fear-driven political behavior was not in line with the gospel. And to add insult to injury, verse 13, 
says that Peter's hypocrisy is actually leading others into hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And you see, Peter's hypocrisy was saying what? To put it in the most simplest of terms, he was saying that there are two justifications. There's a super justification for Jews and there's a sub or inferior justification for Gentiles. Through his actions, the apostle is now trying to rebuild the wall of exclusion that he once joyously stood on top of in Acts 10. That dividing wall of hostility that Paul makes emphatically clear that Christ radically and thoroughly demolished through his death and resurrection, just see Ephesians 2.14. Peter is trying to rebuild it. Peter's outward aloofness is saying that the Gentile justification is inferior to the Jewish justification. And everyone's just gonna have to get used to a two-tier body of Christ unless, unless Gentiles would be willing to add to the gospel, unless they would be willing to take up the taste of Jewish tradition and be circumcised. Then, and only then, they're gonna be allowed to into that first-class section of believers, but not until they conform to Jewish tradition. We see then why Paul uses such a strong word in verse 14, right? Peter, how is it that you compel? Greek word there is force. How do you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What was Peter doing? Peter was using the the powerful psychological powers of exclusion, right? to force, manipulate, or compel Gentiles to adopt his own kind of Christianity. And exclusion and manipulation not only insults human beings, but it also does what? It, it violates the gospel. It smacks in the face of grace. Later, Paul's gonna say of the Jewish legalists in Galatians 4, 17. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. You all recall the book, Tom Sawyer, right? Aunt Polly asked Tom to whitewash the fence. And what does Tom do? He convinces Ben to do so in his stead. And Mark Twain offers a great commentary at that juncture. He says, in order to get a man or boy to covet a thing, he need only make it difficult to attain. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were attempting to do, to make justification difficult to attain. But what the gospel says is radically different, no? The gospel says that right standing with God is easy to attain. All you need is who? You need Christ, received with the empty hands of faith. There's no hierarchy to justification. There's no degrees or shades or levels. An offering to the few and the favored, some sort of first-class elite status where you're allowed to board the plane early and have extra leg room is not in step with the gospel. It not only messes with the gospel, but it also messes with our insecurities as well. It appeals to our fear and our pride. We begin to say, our church is better. Our church is for smart people, for cool people, for traditional people, fill in the blank and maybe, maybe, you might just qualify someday. 
You can see how a church in their culture can begin to adopt this sort of arrogance. I would but ask, Northlake, where is that in the gospel? Where is that audacity in the heart of God? Anything like that that resembles what Peter was holding out to those because he feared man was a denial of justification by faith alone. Even if our doctrine is enshrined in our doctrinal statement, and it is, we can literally violate it through our actions, just as Peter was doing. A faithful gospel culture creates an environment that's so lovely and gentle and respectful that it's easy for anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ to come into this place and be welcomed. No one is inferior. Why? Because we are all sinners in need of the same exact grace. Now the question remains for you and I is how is that type of faithfulness accomplished? That kind of gospel culture. Well, the text would go on to argue that gospel doctrine must have its way in developing gospel culture. That's where we see verses 15 through 18. You have Peter's relapse, his forgetfulness, and we can so relate to Peter all throughout scripture, right? Uh, My mouth is the shape of my foot, just like Peter. We can learn a lot from his relapse, but we also see Paul's response or rebuke. Look at verse 15. He says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, we know, that's an important phrase, we know, knowing, and I would ask, do you know this, what he's about to say? Nevertheless, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even if we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, how much flesh will be justified? No flesh will be justified. Friends, we are here this morning because we have, in effect, given up on ourselves. And let me explain what I mean by that. We have accepted, as believers, that our only justification is Christ. We sing the song, right? All I have is Christ. We are here because our free justification, our validation, our okayness, our completeness, our full reinstatement with the Holy God is not dependent upon ourselves, but on the finished sufficient work of Christ on a cross. This gospel of free justification means everything to you and I, does it not? It means everything. And we want everyone in Dallas-Fort Worth to know this same mercy, yes? We want everyone in the Middle East, in Bosnia, in Russia, Israel, Philippines, even Juneau, Alaska, we want them to know the freedom that's bound up in Jesus Christ, the freedom that he's provided through his death and resurrection, right? Galatians 5, our key verse of the book, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, do not take up a yoke of slavery again. That's exactly what Peter was doing. He set you free. Why are you picking up that yoke? Why do you go back to the chains? Christ has freed us from the curse of the law. In a few weeks, we're gonna see in Galatians 3, we're gonna literally see that Christ became a curse for us. He took our condemnation upon himself, which is exactly what the law brings. Nothing but condemnation. 
And through his own redeeming work on our behalf, dying in the place of sinners, being raised by God's glorious power. And he did this also that we could be free from the law and its curse and be free to live for him. We want every individual made in the image of God to know this salvation. And so we join with Paul in saying, we know that a person, we know, we cherish it. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. We love this doctrine, amen? Do you love this doctrine? You were saved by grace. We love the biblical historical doctrine of justification by faith alone. The Heidelberg Catechism asks us this, how are you made right with God? And it teaches us to answer the following, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them, and that I am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine or of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin. Marvel at that, church and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ would fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with the believing heart. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks similarly, what is justification and teaches us to answer? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by what? Faith alone. Church, this is what we heard and received in the gospel. Christ is our full justification. And so now when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we are compelled in brokenness to ask the Lord for mercy. And then what do we do? We move on rejoicing, knowing that our standing is secure. Do you believe that this morning? I've been in the church for a number of years, enough to know that every single Lord's Day, people come in here beat up and battered. Guilt and shame rest upon your shoulders. You need to taste again the grace of God. You have been washed, cleansed, made his own. And you know what that should do? That should change how you sing this morning. That should change how you read this morning. You should be on the edge of your seat. God, I want to hear from you who saved me by your grace. Marvelous grace, right? Charles Hodge wrote, Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers that their justification is not merely the act of a sovereign dispensing of law, but the act of a judge, note this, declaring the law to be satisfied. Northlake, that is the joyous finality of our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nevertheless, we know no man will be justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, Peter, and we here today believe and teach that God is satisfied with all of us, Not because of anything we have done, but only because of his sufficient work on the cross. And it's received by those who take it up 
by faith. We love this gospel doctrine. And we can begin to see why this is such a big deal here in this text. Look at verse 18. Again, remember, Paul is literally opposing Peter to his face, and there's eyes watching him. You could cut the tension with a knife. But he tells Peter, for if I rebuild what I, want, I have once destroyed, what is he saying there? He's saying, Peter, listen, you and I both know we are Jews. That works-based system, that law which brought nothing but a curse, nothing but condemnation, it's been destroyed, it's been fulfilled, it's been satisfied. And yet you are trying to rebuild it. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, what? I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul to Peter in a public crowd. Those are strong words. Incredibly strong words. What's the takeaway for you and I? Peter had right doctrine. He did. And we are to have right doctrine. But if all we have is right doctrine, even if it's a doctrine that we love, we can still lose our way and prove unfaithful as no less than the apostle Peter did. That's the reminder. If anything, you walk away today with humility. I am not above committing the same mistakes and the same error. I too could sin against my Lord and violate the gospel of grace. Why? Because I say one thing and I live another with my actions, with superiority, of eliteness, right? So we asked this morning, how can a healthy, life-giving, not life-depleting church a properly inclusive, beautiful gospel culture, how is that sustainable long-term? Well, we need more than doctrine and we need more than culture. We need the very touch of the Lord himself upon us, right? Constantly. We need gospel spirituality. We see that in verses 19 through 21. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In response to faith in his son, God makes the believing sinner forever dead to the condemnation and penalty of the law. Why? Because as a substitute for sinners, Christ dying in our place, Christ suffered the penalty of death that the law demanded. You know at Romans 6.23, that the, the wages that we earned was what, church? Was death. We were cursed because of the law incapable of satisfying it perfectly. Galatians 3 says he became a curse for you. He absorbed that curse, absorbed that penalty. So that Romans 8, you love it. There is now now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do as weak as though it was in the flesh, God did. Wow. By sending his son as a sin offering. God did for you what the law could not do. He sent his son. And what did that son do? He obeyed the law perfectly, every bit of it, and then proceeded to die the death that you and I deserve. Paul now says, I have been crucified with Christ. In faith, we are joined into his death. We participate in his resurrection. We are raised to walk and newness of life. I have been crucified with Christ. His death is my death. I have died to the penalty of 
the law. And it is no longer I who lives. This is miraculous and wonderful and profound. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. North Lake, here's the reality that was taking place in Antioch that day. Whatever these men from the circumcision party were thinking, probably a sense of alarm at all the messiness that Gentiles were bringing into their fellowship, whatever it is that they were thinking, one thing we can say for sure is that it wasn't the reality of the love of God for them. It wasn't the reality of the love of Christ for them. And whatever Peter and others were thinking as they were betraying the gospel and caving to church politics, it wasn't the vivid personal reality of the living Lord. Friends, whenever our hearts drift away from that wonderful God-given awareness that Christ loved us, and I know he loved us because he gave himself for us. Whenever you drift from that keen awareness, what begins to happen? That is exactly when you start to weaken and fragment in your fellowship, in your fellowship with one another. If we're drifting away from him in terms of communion and awareness and sweetness and worship, not living by faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us, we also simultaneously drift from one another. We begin to tr- mistreat each other. But the opposite is also equally true. When his love for us begins to move our hearts, what happens? Well, he compels us to keep in step with the gospel. Our lives begin to ar- incarnate that beauty that's bound up in the gospel. We begin to manifest that miracle that God has wrought, that he made enemies of himself, friends of God, so that we can now all collectively pull up a chair at the same table, wall of hostility crumbled and destroyed. I like the way Martin Luther put this here. He says, and this is an important, I think, exercise for us. He says, think carefully. May that discipline mark us. Think carefully about this price and see the captive given the son of God. He is incomparably better than all created things. What will you do when you hear the apostles say that such an inestimable price was given for you? Will you give your vows, your actions, your merits? What can these do? What can even the law of Moses do? What is even the obedience of all the angels in comparison to the son of God given most shamefully to death on the cross so that there is no drop of his most precious blood that was not shed for your sins? If you would but think of this incomparable price properly. And I would argue any time that we are guilty of violating the gospel of grace or our actions, that's exactly what we are not doing. Thinking about this incomparable price properly, you would throw everything else down to hell. Christ is nothing but joy and sweetness to a trembling and broken heart. That is exactly what Paul is conveying here. Christ loved us. He gave himself for us. Peter, you know this. The law did not love you. The law did not give itself for you. The circumcision party that you're fearing did not love you and give give itself for you. Not even Barnabas, but Jesus loved us and he gave himself for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, why? so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
I would encourage you this morning, whatever your background, whatever your track record, I need you to listen this morning. Everyone here has one. Whatever your background and whatever your track record, each of us, by faith in Jesus Christ, has a place at his table, and you need to hear this, forever. Is that sweet to you? Our God will never draw back. He will never separate himself. And unlike Peter, he fears no one. He welcomes you in by his grace, received by faith in his son and his son alone. And there isn't one ounce of hypocrisy in this Christ. He made full satisfaction for us. Why? Because he loved us. And he died the death that we deserve so that God would be exalted through the salvation of sinners. And what in effect happens when our hearts dwell on this precious love, this gift, this grace, we think on it properly, right? As Luther said, that dying love moves us and compels us to do what? To warmly receive anyone who shares faith in Jesus Christ just as we do. I'm not superior to anyone. You are not inferior to anyone if your faith be in Jesus Christ. You are God's child. Christ lives in you. You have been crucified with him just like someone next to you who's full of faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We cherish Christ is what Paul is meaning by this. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that discipline of faith is what propels us towards faithfulness, does it not? As I walk by faith, believing, reveling, cherishing, absorbing the gospel of grace in my life, being moved by it every moment of every day, as Luther said, thinking about it properly, I am compelled and propelled towards faithfulness to my God. Why? Because he loved me and he's worthy. Jonathan Edwards once counseled a young believer. He says, one new discovery of the glory of Christ's face and the fountain of his sweet grace and love will do more towards scattering clouds of doubting and darkness in one minute than in examining old experiences of an entire lifetime. One new discovery of the glory of Christ's face. I love to talk to seasoned believers. I'm talking people who have been believers for a half a century, 50 years. And even they can marvel at the grace of God with a sense of freshness and keenness that is moving and encouraging. George Whitfield once proclaimed, believers must look for fresh influence of divine grace and beg of the Lord to water them every moment. You wake up in the morning, you read God's word, you look out at the sky above and you think about properly the incomparable price that was offered for you. Lord, would you water it every moment? I want it to swell up and grow into a life of faithfulness. I want my doctrine to be faithful. I want the culture of this church, my relationship among these people to be faithful. I want my spiritual life marked by faithfulness because you've loved me and given yourself for me. Let me give you one more. A lot of quotes this morning. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and we'll close with a couple of questions to ponder. He says, in one sense, the whole object of being a Christian is that you may know the love of Jesus Christ, his personal love to you, 
that he may tell you in unmistakable language that he loves you, that he has given himself for you, and that he has loved you with an everlasting love. He does this through the Holy Spirit. He seals all his statements to you through the Spirit. You believe it because it's in the Word. But there is more than that. He will tell you this directly as a great secret. The Spirit gives manifestations of the Son of God to his own, to his beloved, to those for whom he has gladly died and given himself. He will speak these things to you each and every day. Let me ask you this morning, by way of just living what we learn, by by application's sake, what begins to happen in a believer's life when they fail or cease thinking about the gospel of grace properly? You tell me. There's a myriad of things that can possibly happen. What's that? You're crushed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Assurance is diminished. Eternal security wanes, no doubt. What else? What's that? You don't feel worthy or saved? Okay, excellent. And when that's attached to some sort of notion that you have to be worthy to be saved or merit salvation, that becomes problematic and no doubt terrifying in a person's life. So it's fear-inducing. What else? We turn to worldly experiences to show that we are okay. It's all about just trying to put on a part, put on a show, manifest things physically, outwardly, so that it appears at least that we are doing okay. Excellent. Motivations are off in that case. What else? We do not think about the gospel of grace properly. What ensues in our lives? What's that? Yes, yeah, so our doctrine is skewed. That gospel doctrine we looked at becomes uh, not anchored and tethered as it ought. And when you do that, you leave the door open to legalism and, and things that would uh, violate the gospel of grace. And that happens subtly, right? You think of Peter, Acts 10, he's saying one thing in Caesarea, just a few short you know, time later in Galatians chapter two, he's being rebuked in Antioch. So it doesn't take long. What else? Self-righteousness, excellent, arrogance. You walk into this place with your chest a little puffed out more than it should, right? There should be such a meekness and humility that marks us as the people of God, no? Because you enter into this place with the mindset, I deserve nothing but wrath. Anything above that is only by God's favor and mercy. Right? It's only by his grace. What else? Natalie. Yeah. It's easy to be irritable with people, right? You're not compelled, when we're talking about gospel faithfulness in your life in a practical, just earthly way, you are irritable with people. Why? It's because you are not motivated to be long suffering, right? Forbearance doesn't mark your life. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and following, isn't a part of there. That love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentle, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Totally butchered that. We'll get it right by the time we reach Galatians 5. Some of those were worth repeating, I suppose. Okay? 
Yeah, excellent. More irritable with people. What else? You start believing the lies of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And pretty much every false religion, every cult, every other religion, we're the only ones that see reality through this lens of the gospel, yes? All other systems are workspace systems. So we begin to emulate and mirror and really kind of walk in lockstep with the theology and ideology of this world. This world that's ruled by the prince of the power of the air, which is exactly what your enemy wants in your life. It's exactly what he wanted in Galatia, yes? We, we read a statement you know, a couple weeks ago that if, if Satan can't destroy the church through persecution, and we learn in the book of Acts, that's not the case. He's going to slip in with erroneous doctrine. And that's what's happening here. Paul stands up as a lion, opens his mouth and rebukes them. Next Sunday, we're gonna step into chapter three, three and he's just gonna start shooting arrows and they're sanctified holy arrows, but he shoots arrows and arguments to really kind of hold out the doctrine of justification by faith alone through scripture. And so I encourage you to come back next week, Galatians 3. Let's uh, bow our heads and thank the Lord for this morning for his grace and pray for our next hour. God, we thank you for your grace. We are unworthy to stand in your presence. We are unworthy to be called your child. We are unworthy to be given life in yourself. And yet you in love and for your great glory, you made us worthy through the worth of your son. We ask that the next hour that you would continue this work and ministry of enabling us to marvel anew and afresh at your grace. You've displayed that grace even over the last three years of this church plant. You have superintended our time. You have gone before us. You have brought blessings. You have led us through challenges. You have added to your people. You have enriched our lives and grown us in in our faith, all for your glory. You have proven yourself more than faithful. We get to marvel at that the next hour. We get to hear from your word. We get to sing of your praises. We ask that you would help us billow out these wondrous truths unto yourself for you are worthy. Thank you for our time and may our fellowship be sweet and honoring to you because we are people marked by your grace. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.